really understand people, understand their motivations. How do you gel them together as a team? How do you get them excited around the mission? How do you get them to do great things, which it would be hard for any one of them, including myself, to do on our own? Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, innovators. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. Today, I am joined by Manav Misra. Manav, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be on. For those of our listeners who don't know, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Yeah, so David, I am the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Regions Financial. And for those of your listeners who don't know Regions, Regions is one of the large super regional banks in the United States. Footprint is in about 15 states, mainly in the Southeast and the Midwest. We've got upwards of $170 billion in assets and then branches in those 15 states. So we do business in three different business lines. So consumer banking, corporate banking, which includes commercial, and then wealth management. My role, as the name implies, covers all aspects of data and advanced analytics at the bank. And so I'm responsible for both what are called the defensive as well as the offensive aspects of data and analytics. Very cool. I'm excited to dive a little deeper into that. And I know I've seen regions plenty of times in my travel. How many branches do you guys have? About 1,300 branches or so around. Wow. Yeah. It makes sense then. I've seen you guys around. (laughs) Before we get into a little bit more about what you guys are up to at regions, let's talk a little bit about your backstory, how you started out and how you got to be the chief data and analytics officer, a very large financial institution. And my path is meandering and circuitous, not a very traditional path to get to a role like this. So I grew up in India and Africa and then did my undergraduate degree at the Indian Institute of Technology in Kanpur in electrical engineering. Came over to the United States to do my PhD and did my PhD in artificial intelligence and neural networks. This was in the very early days of that subject and my parallel 
machine that was the all-powerful machine at that time had four processors. So you can imagine the amount of horsepower it had. But finished my PhD and then went into academia. So I was a professor of computer science for a number of years, taught computer science, did research in neural networks, and then left academia to join a startup and got bit by the startup bug, did a few startups one after the other, had some good exits there. And then the last startup that we built was a company called Cognitics. And we built Cognitics during the financial crisis. So we founded it in 2010, just as the financial crisis was happening. And we saw that there was an opportunity to take big data, which was just about coming out at that point, and advanced analytics and help banks understand the risk that they carried in their portfolios at a much more granular level. Mm. Grew that company, got acquired. I was the chief data science officer of the acquiring company. And then at that time, Regents reached out to me and said, we need some help in building out data and analytics and really build on data as a differentiating asset against the competition. So it was a tremendous opportunity opportunity for me to take on. And so I've been uh, there now for four and a half years and loving it. Very cool. It's amazing to meet someone who's been involved in AI since the beginning. Pretty wild to see like how far things have come since then. What's one of the most important things that you learned over the course of your journey, personally or professionally or both? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? I came from a highly technical background. So the Indian Institute of Technology is one of the top engineering institutes in India. And to get in is really hard. You've got to really work hard to get in, but then it's really hard to graduate from there. But what's emphasized is all the STEM knowledge and the technical foundation that you build over there. And then I came and did my PhD and that was also very highly technical. So my focus was very much on the technical foundation and the knowledge that one needed. And I always thought that that was the most important thing to be successful in one did. What I learned through my career was that is table stakes. I mean, you've got to be strong in the technical aspects of what you do, but what really differentiates leaders in technology and analytics is your ability to lead teams of people to be able to do great stuff. And that is much harder than technical knowledge that you gain. So that was the big learning that I've had through my career. And prior to this, I was effective as a leader, but you know, I was very much more focused on the nuts and bolts and the technical components of what we were doing. And that limited me. Since then, I've tried to be much more holistic in the approach that I take and really understand people, understand their motivations, how do you gel them together as a team? How do you get them excited around a mission? How do you get them to do great things, which it would be hard for any one of them, including myself, to do on our own? Yeah, 100%. That makes sense to me. I started working with a business coach a little while back who's helped me a lot with that. How did you go about developing that muscle coming from a very technical background and developing those leadership skills? Was there anything? I mean, I'm sure you learned on the job kind of as you went, but was there anything else that you sought out, either particular methodologies or anything like that that you might... uh share with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I was fortunate to find and marry a woman who was a professor of management. And so she's <laughs> been my 
personal coach through the last 30 years and really helped me kind of figure out what are the things that I should be focusing on, what kinds of books I should be reading, and what are the dynamics of team? How do you get that team to really be a high-performing team? I was tremendously fortunate in that. Wow, that's fantastic. I love that. So what about a time that either a moment that you had a significant challenge or a failure, if you will, but something that occurred that you learned something significant from what had happened? As I mentioned, I had the opportunity to be part of multiple startups, including being the founder of a couple. And in a startup, you're working, you're on the raises at all times. You don't have much room for failure because the, the consequences are huge. You've got people who are relying on you for their livelihood. You don't have too much in terms of slack to work with. You know, large companies have, whether it's economic slack, whether it's goodwill slack that they've got in the market. In a startup, you just don't have that. So every crisis is one that could mean the end of the organization. So there were numerous times when you were at that edge and you're trying to figure out how do you survive this? The one example that I give is one where we were part of an e-commerce startup and we had gotten a ton of capital infusement into the company. And then we were building out a platform that would handle a tremendous amount of load during the holiday season. And as we saw that load starting to come up, our system started failing. We obviously didn't have the, the necessary economic wherewithal to do extensive stress tests on the infrastructure. We had done some tests, but they just weren't sufficient. And as the volume started increasing, one component would fail we would fix that and then the dam would break and the next component would fail. There were four of us that were leading the technology group at that time. And for the Thanksgiving week weekend and a few days after that, we essentially slept in the, the office. We did whatever we could to hold the port in place to against the onslaught that we were seeing. You know, it was a tremendous experience in hindsight. It was really scary during that time because if we had failed we would have been, we'd had a Wall Street Journal article written on us the week before saying, hey, here's the darling, this is the, the future. It would have been a spectacular failure. But what it taught us was that power of a team coming together. All four of us on the leadership and then the team beyond that had very different strengths. Each of us could do one part better than the other, but together we could do so much more. And that's the learning that I've taken and then built on as we've gone further and really emphasize creating teams that are much more than the sum of the parts. Ah, I love that. So now, Manav, I want to get into your current roles as we transition to that. Favorite book, either all time or that you're reading right now? All time, there are lots. And some of them are in the fiction domain and some are in nonfiction. What I'm reading right now, there's a fiction book that I'm reading, which is a book by Kiran Desai called The Inheritance of Loss, an interesting story. I'm also, I enjoy reading uh, history and not just reading, but there's a podcast called Throughline, which takes some subject and does really, as the name implies, looks at the through line of history on how things develop over time and where we are at right now. And that's one of my favorite podcasts right now. Do they have an episode on AI? Not yet on AI. <laughs> Not uh, one I've seen at least yet. <laughs> I would be really interested in that through line. I, I bet you could do the episode yourself. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about regions. So talk to us a little bit about your 
vision for your department, if you will, based on the overall mission of the organization? Yeah, so the mission of our organization is to make a positive impact on the lives of our customers, our communities, and our associates, our team members, and from a financial perspective. And we've tremendous organization in that regard. Everything we do, we look at the impacts it's going to have on the communities we serve, the customers, and how we make the lives of our team members better as well. And our CEO is really a farsighted person, somebody who has early on put in place that data could really help us achieve that objective. So when I joined the organization, I set up the vision of our team, the data analytics team, to make regions a data-driven, a best-in-class data-driven organization. So when we made decisions, we use data to make those decisions. And then really to make true impact onto the bank and then therefore our customers. So that's the vision and mission that we've been going after over the last four and a half years that I've been at Regions. And like I said, I've been really fortunate to have the support of the top of the house and the involvement from the rest of the leadership at Regions. The way I approach leading an organization like mine, I think I first saw this description in a Gartner article where they said to be a leader, there are three components and it's like putting together the performance of a symphony. So you've got to have a composer who's got the vision of seeing what that music should look like. You've got to have a conductor who brings together the musicians and then is able to get them to work together. And then you've got the individual musicians who are actually playing the violin or playing the piano, etc. As a leader of an organization, you have to be able to do all three of those. You know, you've got to set that vision as the composer, you've got to conduct the team. And then there are times when you have to be jump in and play violin for a period of time. Each of us is better at one or, or the other of these three dimensions. But the role that I came in at Regions, I had to be the composer first to lay out that vision and to paint it. And then I had to find the right musicians, build them together into a cohesive team and then conduct them to deliver beautiful music. So that's what we've been able to do at Regents. We've been able to really use the metaphor or the example of creating software products, and I call the work we do creating data products. But I had to find the right talent. Some of it came from within Regents, but I had to bring in talent from outside, and then I had to get them all to work together. But we've delivered some phenomenal data products to the organizations with tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of impact to the bank over the last four years. Wow, fantastic. I love that, that metaphor as well. Sometimes I wish I could just be the composer. That's that's one of my favorite roles, just mapping out that vision. I once asked my team for feedback about what could I do better? What am I doing well? And one of the things they appreciated was that there are times when I do get in the trenches with them and they appreciate that I'm not just kind of in the ether there. So I think there's something to that, those three different parts. I appreciate that. What about some of the key initiatives that you guys are focused on now? I mean, clearly you guys have had a tremendous impact over the past number of years. What does you know the future look like? Yeah, so again, we're really fortunate that we're at this inflection point where we're painting out the vision for what we call R2.0, Regions 2.0. Our CEO has challenged us to think about what regions should look like as a bank five years or 10 years down the road. And so it's a business-driven transformation. 
But then what technologies do we need to be able to get regions to be that bank of the future? So there are multiple components to this. So we're giving us an opportunity to transform our core platform. It's giving us the opportunity to migrate to the cloud. It's giving us the opportunity to really put ourselves in our customers' shoes and think about what is the customer of the future going to be asking for? And therefore, what are the kinds of data products we need to build to be able to meet that need. So my team right now is involved in multiple work streams. So the transformation of the core, standing up a variety of cloud-based tools that will provide a real-time data platform that gives us a 360 view of our customers in real time. So if a customer deposits a check, all channels know about it right away. If there's a hold that's put on the check, if there's anything that the customer has questions about, they can go to any of the channels, whether it's a branch, whether it's the contact center, the app, the online solutions, any of those, and get the same answer in real time to what's happening for any of their transactions or their financial life overall. It also gives us an opportunity to start really delivering hyper-personalized advice and guidance to our customers you know, the customer of yesterday was comfortable walking into a branch, getting to know a banker, building a relationship with that banker, and then having that banker provide advice. The customer of today and the customers certainly of tomorrow is used to getting everything through their phone. And they want that same kind of advice and guidance personalized to them through their phone. That capability through an AI-based advisor with the ability to then transition to a human being at the right point in time, you know, when they're going for a mortgage, they don't want to get all that information through their phone. They want to talk to somebody, but that seamless transition is where we want to be at, where we're providing the advice of, hey, you know, you may want to save a little bit more or doing this could help you with your credit score and it'll help you get that right car loan and so on and so forth to the big decisions where they need to talk to somebody and they can come into a brand. Are those algorithms and AI that you guys are writing? Absolutely. Yeah. Building out a lot of those capabilities and we're really excited about it. Yeah, that's very cool. It's funny that you mentioned that because I have an idea for a company like a startup where it's connected to a marketplace partner of ours. But basically, you know, there's all these SMBs out there that at big advisory consultant shops aren't really serving because there's not enough meat on the bone there, right? To, you know, pay for staff and all the other things like that. But they need guidance as to what their application stack should look like, what things they should be considering given their business goals and challenges. So, you know, if we layer a computational AI on the front end, that's we can tee up a series of questions given the industry, ingest that, and then that AI can handle that kind of first level of correspondence, BPO for the second layer. And then as a third layer, they need to transfer to someone like live in the States, then so be it. But anyways, I love what you guys are doing. I think it's brilliant. And I think it's timely. I mean, I'm the first one to tell you that I'm the same way where I do pretty much everything on my phone. And the experience that you get through the companies that are doing it right, I am very loyal to Delta, to Amex for those exact reasons. Even Amazon, it's a brilliant experience. And I love that you're letting the consumer drive that experience because that's what it's all about. And like, thank God healthcare is finally catching up to that because you know it's about time yeah so. yeah what about some of the biggest challenges that you guys are facing as an organization today 
I think we're fortunate that we're in a good place right now. You know, the economy is held up reasonably well. You know, we're the kinds of crises that existed in the 2008 to 2010 kind of time frame, which is it all hands on deck, firefighting mode, where you can't really look beyond is not something that we're faced with. So it gives us some time, some resources to go after some of these innovations and truly think about what's next. The challenges are the ones about getting the right talent. And, you know, obviously the market has shifted dramatically over the last few months where there was a war on talent and now there are all these layoffs. We've benefited from them to some degree. We've been able to be in a position where we can hire from some of the tech giants who are laying off good talent. But at the same time, it get the kind of talent that I want to bring on to my team will always remain hard, independent of the market. I mean, uh, to get the very top people, they'll always be in demand. And so I want to really attract the very best folks onto our team to give them an environment. They're being challenged. They're working on interesting problems. They're surrounded by others who are equally or, or smarter than them. And they find that exciting. So all of those are challenges in their own right, you know, finding the talent, giving them the right kinds of problems, giving them the right environment, you know, the right kinds of rewards to make it worthwhile. But those are the things that I focus on in order to keep delivering what we want to deliver. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's common concern of organizations. And but it's great to hear that you guys benefited from some of those layoffs and great for those folks that they were able to land with regions. What about some of the best practices that you and your team follow? Any suggestions that you have to other executives or leadership that are listening today? You know, one of the other things I learned was the importance of selling. And again, coming from a highly technical background, selling was always looked down upon. It was like, hey, something that used car salesman does. What right. I learned was the best salespeople are people that truly invest in relationships and are concerned about how to solve problems for their buyers. So they build strong relationships that truly understand what the other side needs, and then figures out how to deliver that. And then sometimes their product suite or their services suite may not have those capabilities and they're willing to say, look, we won't be able to help you right now. And that is important independent of what role you're in. You'll always be selling your ideas. You'll always be selling the capabilities that you've built out in your team, whether it's internal selling or external selling. So that is a major learning that I came to and kind of helped me as we move forward. So as we go forward, that's been an important aspect of my organization in terms of building those relationships with our quote-unquote customers, our internal customers, who are the business units that work with us and look to us to provide solutions to the problems they have. And so the best practices we built out involve really understanding where their pain points are, building out the right kind of solutions for them, and measuring everything that we do. So really measuring what the baseline is, what kind of impact we've been able to have for our business partners, reporting on that and marketing those aspects of the benefits, because that's what helps drive the next set of challenges or problems to come to us for solutions. So those are some of the best practices we put in place. We're obviously very disciplined in terms of setting delivery timelines and meeting expectations, but those are some of the table stakes. But I think the big thing is understanding the problems we're trying to solve, making sure that they're big, 
value drivers for the kind of work we do. So we don't do just incremental small stuff, but we deliver some larger value to our business partners and then measuring everything that we do. Yeah, no, I love that. Focusing on things that have the largest impact and yeah, great best practices. What about some of the most innovative, pretty much everything that you guys are doing is innovative. So <laughs> excuse this question, but you know, some of the innovative technologies or projects that you guys are working on either currently or that you have on the roadmap for the future that you're really excited about that you might share with everyone. The innovation comes in many different forms, right? So there's changes in processes, changes the way we are approaching things, new technology new products that we build out. We've built out some amazing products for our internal bankers to use that give them instant access to data, insights about what's happening to their customers, what kind of actions that they can be taking, recommending the next conversation to have with their customers, predicting risk with their customers so they can be proactive and then take the right steps, predicting fraud when it's likely to happen. So lots of really neat things that we've built out. In terms of innovative technologies, so as I mentioned, we're going to be cloud-based. We're using some of the latest technologies on the AI framework. Here's another interesting thing that we built out for our money laundering investigators. So the challenge that they face is that when bad actors are trying to perpetrate money laundering actions onto a bank like us, it's not like that they open one account and then it's clear what they're doing. They'll open right. multiple accounts. They'll have shell companies. They'll have individual personal accounts. There'll be companies that they'll set up that they are the beneficial owners of. They'll have relatives and friends open accounts. And it's like hundreds of accounts that they've opened up. And for an investigator to go and track through all of that becomes really hard to do. So we built out a graph visualization that shows them connectivity between entities and where money gets moved, and then algorithms that predict where there's the highest risk in that graph. So those wow. are the kinds of things that we've been able to do that have had a big impact. But yeah, I mean, lots of new cloud-based technologies that we're trying out. We're, my team is constantly doing proofs of concepts, trying out new technologies, quickly deciding, do we want to bring them in? use it. There's such a rapid movement in terms of new ideas and new technologies in our field. So we have to be nimble enough to bring them on, move on to the next best idea quickly. We can't be tied to an old legacy technology for tens of years. I, now I'm remembering in, earlier in the episode, you mentioned about your core banking. I know one of the knocks just in the banking industry in general is like a lot of the gorillas in that space have been kind of slow to develop over the right. years. I wish I remembered the name. There was a company out of Europe that was just getting into the U.S., fully cloud-based core banking platform. J JP Morgan, I think, yeah. like invested. But yeah, I mean, it's exciting. If you guys are making strides in developing that core banking, you know, that's big because it's about time that organizations are doing that. Yeah, that company is Thought Machine. Right. But yeah, I mean, there are lots of new ideas and technologies that are coming out into the market that we're uh, looking at and using. Very cool. And thanks for reminding me. So last couple of questions here. Where do you see the banking industry going in the future? And what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes? Yeah. So as I mentioned, the driven by the needs of our customers and where their preferences and proclivities are, everything is going to be digital first. And then AI will play a huge role in terms of personalized advice and guidance. When we talk to our customers, what we hear from them are three things. So one is 
that I want banking to be easy. I want them to meet my needs, where I am, what tool I'm on, etc. Whether it's on digital device, whether it's in a branch, whether it's through a contact center, I want banking to be easy. Secondly, they want banking to be secure. They, they want the money to be safe. They want the data to be safe. And then thirdly, they want personalized advice and guidance. So those are the three things we keep hearing on a repeated basis from our customers. So us as a bank, Regions 2.0, that's what we're shooting for. We want to be able to meet all those three needs you know, make banking easier, make it secure, provide personalized advice and guidance. And so in that, digital technologies will play a huge role. AI will play a massive role. You really want to be working with a company that provides an intelligent agent that is highly secure, knows you, won't tell anybody else about you, but is looking out for you and is about proactively providing you with that guidance in that next step of your financial journey. I mean, all of us go through a highly personalized financial journey in our lives. I mean, right now people go to their relatives or their parents or some trusted advisor or a banker, but a lot of people don't have access to folks like that. But to have something in a digital form that is as knowledgeable, as trustworthy, you know, doesn't blab to anybody else about your financial situation and is able to guide you to make the right decisions. That's where I want us to go to. And I tell our team to try and drive us towards that. That's amazing. Manav, we're going to wrap up here in a minute. The last question that we like to ask our guests is, if you could go back 5, 10, even 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? That's an interesting question. Probably not to be so hard on yourself. That's a good and, one. And again, you know, when you're young, you want to strive for success. You beat yourself up for every little thing. In the long run, those things don't often matter. So invest more on relationships with people and things work out. Love it. Great advice. Manav, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, this was a delightful conversation, David. Yeah, cheers. And to our listeners, thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.